the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to AmericanSchismBook.com. program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is Professor Emerita at University of Illinois at Chicago and a lecturer in the program in Medical Humanities and Bioethics the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University and the author of a new book called Dangerous Medicine. We're going to find out what that's all about with the author, Sidney Halpern, who joins me by phone. Hi, Sidney. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Um, this is... Dangerous Medicine offers, uh, according to press I've read... Um, Revelations into America's 30-year program of infecting people with hepatitis and its implications for research aimed at controlling COVID-19. Um, does controlling COVID-19 justify 
infecting people with hepatitis in some way? Uh, no, I think the link <laughs> there was <laughs> no. <laughs> well, let me let me start by saying that um, there are some very disturbing episodes in the history of biomedicine, um, not so long ago, um, and I think that this episode and what I write about um, does have implications for how we think about um, medical experiments today. Um, no, and I just want to be clear that. The clinical trials of COVID vaccines uh, were experiments, but they didn't involve anywhere near the risk that uh, the experiments that I write about in Dangerous Medicine. Um, well, and you said, you know, that these things happened fairly recently. You, the 30-year period you're talking about is between 1942 and 1972. Exactly, exactly. That's not like the way back in the... <laughs> in the Renaissance period. No, no, it isn't. And as a matter of fact, um, for part of the book, I actually interviewed uh, two individuals in their 90s when I talked with them who in their 20s had been human subjects in these experiments. So there were people still alive at the time I was writing the book who could tell me about their experiences. Um, they were really um, amazing people. I really enjoyed talking with them. You know, there have been stories about medical experiments on people where the people didn't know they were being experimented on and I'm thinking Indeed, of, yes. I'm thinking of Tuskegee and and there are some other examples um, but when we talk about infecting people with hepatitis were people aware that that's what was being done um, some were very aware some were genuine volunteers. The conscientious objectors, the two men I spoke with were conscientious objectors in their youth or pacifists. They were very aware. In fact, they were genuine volunteers. There are also prisoners who participate, prison inmates. They were also aware. Um, but there were people who were in institutions um, for the developmentally disabled. There were people in mental institutions. And whether they understood that this was an experiment, um, I, I think probably, or even understood what volunteer, what the meaning of the word volunteer, I very much doubt that those individuals uh, consented and participated voluntarily. And, and was there any kind of approval needed to conduct these experiments? And, and if not, how can you reveal the results of, of something that you didn't have permission to do? So all of these experiments were funded by the U.S. government. During this particular time in American history, there wasn't a system for overseeing clinical experimentation in the U.S. This was a, a system does exist today. It's through what we call institutional review boards. And they were basically created in the late 60s just as these uh, hepatitis experiments were ending. Um, so it's a good question. Uh, was there oversight? There was oversight by scientific bodies. Um, there were um, groups of consultants who oversaw the experiments for the federal government, and they were approved by these bodies. And the argument was that um, we were in a period, and the country was in a period of war, um, that hepatitis was a threat to the military. There were outbreaks of hepatitis among soldiers during World War II. 
And at the end of the war, researchers discovered that hepatitis B was contaminating the American blood supply, and this was a threat to public health. Policymakers saw the, the problem of hepatitis as a threat to uh, national security. So um, the federal government was indeed behind these experiments. What about the people who conducted the experiments? Wouldn't their Hippocratic oath have guided them differently in, in terms of not doing any harm? So um, I've uh, done a lot of research on the thinking of biomedical researchers. I wrote a previous book on the testing of vaccines before uh, a regulatory system was in place. So this is the early 20th century that I was looking at. When researchers assess doing a clinical intervention, they're weighing the risk of the intervention to those who are subjects against the benefits both to the subjects, but also to science and society at large. So in a context of a national emergency, um, they, they saw the potential benefits of, of doing research that could potentially yield treatment or prevention of a disease that was problematic, that, that was a problem for national security. They put a lot of emphasis on the perceived benefits. Um, and they also, with the groups of people who were in facilities uh, for those impaired, they argued that the, uh, it's kind of mind-boggling, or you have to twist your mind around it, that the experiments benefited the individuals. Um, one of the logics, the way that that logic works, was that, for example, in institutions for the developmentally disabled, infectious diseases were rampant. And so the scientists told the supervisors of these institutions that they would help, the research would help control epidemic diseases within the institutions. So that's how they generated support for the experiments. And what was the experiment exactly? Was it medication that would um, kill the disease? Was it, were they vaccines? What, what exactly was being done? So over the 30-year uh, period of the of the, pro the program, it was a U.S. program, there were hundreds of different experiments. In the first, uh, during World War II, well, it, it involved actually giving people um, a specimen from a person known to have hepatitis or thought to have hepatitis. So the specimens could include stool because the way hepatitis A is transmitted is through food and water. Um, and with hepatitis B and C, although they didn't know about C, it was um, often uh, blood. So it was an injection of blood. Um, so um, the first experiments were trying to figure out how does this disease get transmitted? How long is there? incubation period, the period between exposure and actually getting symptoms, what's the course of the disease. Then later, they, act, they shifted the focus after World War II to trying to develop immunizing agents. Um, they, they tried uh, various technologies that were used with other viruses to attempt to cultivate hepatitis and then give it to human subjects to see if the median, the culture median, they were using actually uh, succeeded in sustaining the virus. Then in the late 60s, 
they were actually testing um, what, they, what they call vaccine candidates to see the B for hepatitis B to see if they work. So there were a lot of different types of goals in the experiments, hundreds of different experiments over a 30-year period. Is but they all involved infecting people or potentially infecting people with viruses for hepatitis A and B. Is there any way to get the answers to the questions they had, whether it's hepatitis or COVID-19 or, or um, anthrax or anything else, without human and animal experimentation? Some of the, some of the answers have to be gotten through experiments with live beings. Um, in the history of hepatitis, the, during the period they were doing human experiments, the so transmission experiments, scientists tried to find an animal model, an animal that would be susceptible to hepatitis. They were unable to do so for decades, and that was why they resorted to experimenting with people. Um, but the truth is that there are some types of um, questions in medicine and medical research that can only be answered with uh, an experiments on a living organism. And even when animal experiments show something, there really has to be testing on people to find out if that knowledge with animals actually uh, is, you know, applies to, to the human organism. So whether we like it or not, if we want continued advances in disease prevention and treatment, we're going to have to figure out ways of doing experiments on people. Um, that we feel are morally acceptable. I just want to emphasize that these experiments giving people hepatitis with groups that are vulnerable and perhaps unknowing are not going on today. Uh, there are maybe other experiments going on that 50 years from now people would be looking back and saying, oh, goodness, that was terrible. So, um, but the situation isn't, it's analogous, say, with, with COVID, but it isn't exactly the same. As it is with hepatitis. Well, and and I and I didn't mean to lump them together that way, um, but just at, at some point in every um, development of vaccines and other kinds of medications, um, at at some point they're going to have to test it on people, aren't they? Yes, indeed they are. Indeed they are. So even if you have a vaccine that works with an animal susceptible to a disease, you're still going to have to introduce it to people. And those early experiments are risk-laden. There's no way around it. So I think one of the lessons is that we need to think as a society, who are we asking to be subjects in experiments that we acknowledge um, involve you know, a considerable amount of risk to the people who are human subjects and may offer them no benefit whatsoever. So this is not like a new therapy for cancer that has not cure, is not curable by existing interventions, where the individual who's a subject might gain. So I'm looking here at what we call non-therapeutic experiments. So who's gonna, who are going to be the subjects, and do we really want to use people in our society that are generally devalued. And that's Sid what happened during World War II in the, in the early Cold War. We were using people Sidney, that we devalued. I have to take a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Sure. Okay. My guest is Sydney Halpern. Her new book is Dangerous Medicine. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. 
Kenneth. From Louis. Martavia Newman. From Marisha. Bertrand. And the Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hi, welcome back, everybody. My uh, guest this hour is from the University of Illinois, talking about her book, uh, Dangerous Medicine. Sydney Halpern uh, joins me by phone. Sydney, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no problem. Um, just before the break, or, or at least in the last segment, uh, toward the end of the segment, you mentioned something about the difference between experimentation and experimentation with therapeutics. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, there are some experiments um, where the individuals are trying to test out a new treatment, um, particularly for people for whom existing treatments uh, don't work. So, for example, um, a lot of people um, sign up for clinical trials um, uh, because they're, they have a terminal disease and they face with a situation that no existing um, medical therapies are working for them. So I would call uh, participation in that kind of clinical trial to be participation in a potentially therapeutic experiment. In the experiments that I look at in this particular book, the individuals who were subject had nothing to gain. Um, you know, they were being given a disease um, for science. So the logic is they were contributing to science, they were contributing to the well-being of future patients if medical breakthroughs uh, resulted from these experiments. But so, in some um, cases, they were just being given the disease to see what would happen. That's uh, a fair way of putting it. That's a fair way of putting it, yeah. And, and you call that, that practice troubling and alluded to the fact that there is oversight now that doesn't exist then. But where, um, what are the ethical lines that, that are drawn now that weren't then? You know, that's a really hard one. Um, and I think how, um, well, first of all, I, I, well, I can say some, some straightforward things. There are uh, prohibitions about doing experiments that are non-therapeutic on prisoners because um, prisoners in a coercive situation, maybe they can't um, voluntarily participate. And it's very difficult to enroll children in these types of experiments as well. So there are, now in federal regulatory code, there are designated vulnerable groups and there are special uh, rules about um, under what circumstances individuals in these categories can be used as human subjects. For example, they can't be used as human subjects unless the research pertains to problems um, that are particular to the group. So you, can, you just can't uh, use children because they're convenient, for example, or prisoners because they're convenient. Um, are we more apt? You know, a, are we more apt to study people who've actually contracted something, rather than giving people the disease to see how it works? 
Well, that certainly would be an alternative to giving people the disease. And one of the things that I think was a problem in um, 1940 to 1972 with hepatitis was that the research community didn't really know a lot about hepatitis. So when they were giving people hepatitis, they didn't understand the long-term risks, for example, of becoming a hepatitis carrier of hepatitis B or hepatitis C. They understood that there were carriers for blood-borne forms of hepatitis, but they didn't understand that for these individuals who never cleared the virus from their bodies, that two or three decades after initial exposure, they were at risk for developing cirrhosis and liver cancer. When you ask, what, what are the boundaries? Um, basically, um, researchers evaluate risk and benefits, and when they go to institutional review boards, they argue, and they have to argue, that the benefits outweigh the risk. But there isn't a firm line. It's a very permeable line. I think that uh, attitudes in society at large very much affect what the perceived benefits are for an experiment. And there is a danger in situations of national emergency and public health emergencies that the perceived benefits of risky experiments uh, will be seen as much greater than in other periods of the history. So when there isn't a perceived um, emergency. So the hepatitis experiments that I was studying went on in a period of world war um, which society was mobilized and in which contributions to the common good were really highly valued. And during the Cold War period where there was still a perceived threat, uh, a perceived danger from the outside. Um, so this did affect um, where the boundary was between ethical and unethical experiments. There's no way around it. And our ideas of what is moral change over time. Well, and, and I, I guess the question that I have now is, who's doing the research and how is it funded? Is this being done by phar pharmaceutical companies or is it being done in colleges around the country? Um, and, and who's paying for it? Is it government funded? Is it funded by pharmaceutical companies? So... Um in the last half century, there's been an increasing portion of overall biomedical research funded by pharmaceutical companies. Um, there still is quite a bit of research funded by agencies of the federal government. Um, and, um, you know, the organization of the, of, has changed, so a lot, of, a lot of research for pharmaceuticals is actually exported to outside the country to what is now euphemistically called low-income countries. Um, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the things going on that concerns me is that while neither pharmaceutical companies or researchers who are funded by federal grants or by uh, foundation grants who are working in American universities, um, What's going on now is that um, research organizations are paying people to participate in non-therapeutic research. So we're not using vulnerable groups that were used at mid-century, but we are using people who are low income because that's who signs up to get paid for being a, a human 
you know, for being a human subject. So what's happening is we're using people at the low end of the uh, economic ladder to be human subjects in non-therapeutic experiments, which concerns me. I think we should try to get more people to participate in needed medical research. Are they, are they being compensated in any way? Yeah, they're being paid money. Um, which... And depending on the risk, they're paid, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe a couple months will be five, $6,000, for example, for being, well, depending on the experiment, depending on how much of their freedom is, is restricted during the period of the experiment. Um, it, it's just, it's hard for me to really see much difference between what's going on now and, and what was going on in the period you study in your book. Well, let's see. Let me, let me review the differences. We're not using groups like prison inmates, children, mental patients, those groups, for experiments that don't... Um, that don't address issues for those that, that are problematic for those particular groups. Do you think we're not taking um, advantage of people in a way that we used to? Well, I am concerned. I'm, you know, I, I think we're still using people who are devalued. Now, now we're using people who don't have money. Um, and I also am concerned because the U.S. doesn't have a system of compensating for research injuries, and I think we need a system to do that. Um, so, for example, the individuals in the hepatitis experiment who were injured, there was no tracking, there was no long-term follow-up, and there was no compensation. Um, and I think something needs to be done about that. But, you know, we're not giving people... You know, this was this was a huge program, giving a lot of people hepatitis. Uh, there isn't there isn't large scale research like this being done that's transmitting disease pathogens on individuals who are in these particular vulnerable groups. But if you're suggesting that there's stuff going on that that is disturbing, I I wouldn't argue. <laughs> <laughs> well, I it's it's just. Hard for me to imagine. I understand when people start getting sick, you know, the search for patient zero and quarantining people and studying how the disease is affecting them and testing and, you know, all of the things that happen. But the idea of just plucking people out of society at whatever level they're on and, uh, you know, experimenting on them. It seems still somehow barbaric to me. All right. Well, okay. I, I, I'm in the interesting uh, situation of defending them. But I will say the following. <laughs> There's a great... <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on that side no, of no, it. No, no, no. I, I think it's amusing. Um, there is a great deal of emphasis today on the need for informed consent. So I can assure you that anybody who's involved in any of these experiments has been told what's going on, have been told the risk, and have signed a consent document. So that I will say. So there aren't, there aren't people who don't know that they're being used in an experiment. I just want to also say one other thing, that the, 
getting a COVID vaccine is not today an experiment, right? There were experiments testing these vaccines. There were clinical trials. The vaccines that we're getting now are approved, um, and 8 billion people across the, the world have gotten COVID vaccines. So we're not talking about getting a COVID vaccine as an experiment. So I just wanted to make that really clear. Right. Um, and, and, and also, if you could explain a little bit what it means to be part of a clinical trial. What is that? How does that work? Okay. So a clinical trial would be, for an example, an experiment testing a new vaccine or a new therapy that hasn't been approved. So a clinical trial is an experiment, and I guess you use clinical trial because it's testing out something that hopefully will be better than anything that currently exists, but there needs to be an assessment of the safety and efficacy of that new intervention, whether it's a vaccine or a drug or a technique. Um, and so individuals will be enrolled. They will be told that they're enrolled. They will be asked if they consent, and they will be told what the risks and benefits are. So no one's today going to be part of a clinical trial and not know it. The experiments I'm looking at weren't, I wouldn't call them clinical trials. They were really, and also a, a clinical trial is usually for an intervention aimed at treatment and prevention or and, prevention. And generally involves someone who's already infected. Or, or has a serious disease, yeah. Well, no, or a vaccine trial, there are clinical trials of vaccines with healthy people. So those also would be clinical trials. But it's testing an intervention that researchers hope will prevent a disease or improve and be an improvement in, a, in medical therapy. The experiments I'm looking at, there was no, uh, there was really no real thought that these were going to help people. I mean, there was justification that it was beneficial because it would produce immunity. But um, just to give you an example of the of the difficulty in differentiating between, you know, what's moral and not moral. Um, you know, there, in a in a vaccine trial or in a vaccine. The researchers are trying to create immunity without symptoms. Well, some of the hepatitis researchers said, well, we're going to create symptoms, but they're going to get immune. So therefore, it's like a vaccine. I don't consider that to be like a vaccine. If you're, if you're giving somebody a disease, yes, they may be immune afterward, but that, that's, that's, that's not therapeutic. That's giving people the disease. Anyway, the boundaries between what's moral and not moral, I think, are very, um, you know, they're permeable, they're mutable, and they have a lot to do, you know, with the social context in which the research takes place. But can we still find the, the answers to the questions we need and be moral and ethical? Well, I think we need to, you know, to struggle to do that. I think we need to seriously consider who we're asking to be involved in risk-laden experiments. I think we need to not just use people who are devalued or people at the low end of the economic strata. 
I think we need to be seriously committed to taking care of people who are inadvertently harmed in human experiments and have, you know, follow-up, long-term follow-up and compensation and care for these individuals. Um, and maybe we need to, uh, I would encourage the research community to think about ways of having people who participate in experiments of this type feel they're part of a common enterprise. That, um, you know, there, there's a piece of, of the social ethos back in the middle part of the 20th century that I think is laudable, and that is people contributing to the common good, people doing something for the greater good. Maybe we should really encourage, um, you know, much wider part, wider participation in these kinds of experiments by valuing um, service in uh, medical research like we value service in the military, something that's uh, a contribution that's valued to society at large. I'm not sure we think about things this way. No, and we really don't. There, there are people lining up to go to Mars even, no, even though they know it's a one-way trip. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and that they're basically forfeiting their lives to, you know, trying to get to and inhabit another planet and they're considered heroic in some way. But yes. But that isn't true of people who step up and say, you know, what can I do to help with right. regard to right. testing, you know, vaccines or other therapeutic yeah maybe we need something like a peace corps uh you know where we don't even have the peace corps anymore really um uh, maybe we need to encourage young people to spend a couple years early in their lives in their young adult lives doing service whether this kind of service or other kinds of service or other many kinds of service that young people do unfortunately we've moved into a period i think where it's everyone's taking care of themselves there's kind of a a distrust in institutions and the feeling like I have to take care of myself because no one else is going to. Um, I think it's very unfortunate. I think there are things we could do to make it so, you know, these are, we need the, we need research to continue in biomedicine if we're going to continue to make progress in preventing and treating diseases. There's no doubt about it, including experiments that are dangerous. Um, but we need ways of doing it that we can live with as a society and not just to be using people that are devalued to do society's dirty work, if you will. Is, and again, I, I asked this before, but I just can't help wondering if there aren't some ways that we can, um, I don't know, develop um, organic... Uh, or organisms that can be experimented on without um, the the human participation, at least initially, is that something that is being done or could be done? Uh, well, this gets into the whole area of cloning, which is really, really tricky and is above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... You know, I mean, there really has been a long history of animal experimentation, um, and that really has helped. Now, now these days we're also very raising moral issues, you know, uh, ethical issues about that as well, as well we should. 
but that's how it was done, and that ha is how it has been done. And we use a variety of organisms. Um, you know, some of them we're less concerned about. I guess we're less concerned about the mice. We certainly should be concerned about the chimpanzees, which and there are regulations about using primates. Um, but for some diseases, primates are the only. So on some human diseases, primates are the only other species that can that are susceptible to the disease. So it's actually somewhat easier to use humans than chimpanzees. Um, yeah, these are very big problems. I don't think that they're easy solutions to, to any of these. They raise um, tricky and disturbing issues about how we think about society, how we think about biomedicine, you know, and how, how we think about, you know, what our responsibilities are to others, our neighbors, and, and the society in general. Who's setting the standards now? Is it FDA? Is it CDC? Um, for human experimentation, um, there are federal regulations um, that were initially created by the National Institutes of Health, okay. um, and then um, many federal agencies uh, signed on to those in the 1990s, um, and it's known as the common rule. Um, and there's a, now a system that's overseen by uh, an agency within NIH that um, oversees the work of institutional review boards, some of which, many of which are located at universities, but some of which oversee uh, research that's not conducted in universities. They're called for-profit institutional review boards. So, and then there's, when the regulations change, um, the proposed changes are um, published in the Federal Register, and there's a period of comment and review, and then there'll be uh, changes based on um, interaction uh, amongst a very variety of federal agencies and commentators um, on the uh, proposed uh, regulatory changes. And so the regulations do change. Um, it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, the Institution Review Boards actually are freestanding um, committees which oversee research protocols which scientists submit for approval before they can proceed with a human experiment. Um, Sydney, we're, we're out of time. The name of the book is Dangerous Medicine, the Story Behind Human Experiments with Hepatitis. It's been out since uh, November 23rd by Sydney Halpern. Sydney, um, we just, just have about 30 seconds left, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Do you have a website? I do. It's www.sydneyhalpern.com. Wow, that's easy. Good for you. Um, Sydney, thanks for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Once again, that was uh, Sidney Halpern from the University of uh, Illinois at Chicago, and the book is Dangerous Medicine. We're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, 
scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, attorney general stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go.
and the Tom Sumner Program. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The doctor was looking at the x-ray and I asked him, what do you see? And he kept on looking at the x-ray as he said in French to me, I see bones, I see gizzards and bones and a few kidney stones. Among the lovely bones I see hips And fourteen paper clips Three asparagus tips Among the lovely bones I see things in your peritoneum That belong in the British I see your spine And your spine looks divine It's exactly like mine Now doesn't that seem strange? And in case You use pay telephones There's two dollars in change Among your lovely bones X-ray. It's really remarkable. Isn't the lumbar vertebrae supposed to be connected to the clavicle? Well, I know, but it's got tape. Hey, look what's in there. Look at that. It's a stamp. It's a 1922 McKinley Ultramarine Blue with imperfect perforations. I've got to get that out and put it in my collection. Look in there, there's printing. What does it say in there? U.S. certified grade A. Look at this, it's fascinating. See those little round things? You know what those are? Those are M&Ms. Those people are right, they don't melt. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
this really I'd better scurry oh, please don't hurry. maybe just to half a drink more on while I, pour. I simply must go baby it's cold outside the answer is no baby it's cold outside this welcome has been lucky that you dropped so in. nice and warm look out the window at the my sister Suspicious. And your lips look so delicious. My brother will be there at the door. Waves upon a tropical shore. My maiden aunt's mind is vicious. Your lips look so delicious. But maybe just a half a drink more. Such a blizzard before. I really can't stay. Baby, don't hold out. Ah, but it's cold outside. Might think, baby, it's bad out there. Say, what's in this drink? Can't be had out there. I wish I knew how. As I like start right now. Break the spell. I'll take your head. Your hair looks I ought to say no, 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 no. At least I'm gonna say that I tried. My pride. I really can't stay. But it's cold outside I've got to go home Baby, you freeze out there Say, lend me your coat It's up to your knees out there You've really been grand Your eyes are like starlight But now. don't you see How can you do this thing to There's me? There's bound to be talk so At least there will be plenty implied. I really can't stay. Over there, hold out. Ah, but it's cold outside. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> 